other day, I posted a photo of the excellent actor Murray Bartlett in his penultimate scene in Mike White's recent HBO series, The White Lotus. And my friend James commented on the Instagram post with, quote, great show. Not exactly sure why, but great. And from that one comment, I was kind of inspired to do this episode because I think James has it exactly right when it comes to The White Lotus. It is a great show. And after concluding it, I'm left kind of wondering exactly why it's great. So I wanted to just talk it out and jot down a few thoughts, which I'll share with you here. I think it is a great show. And I think when I finished it just the other day, I was, as I said, kind of unable to completely articulate exactly why it's a great show. Maybe we'll find some answers here together, as Murray Bartlett's Armand might say. In the immediate aftermath, my feelings were definitely, wow, I just watched something genuinely great, which is a rare occurrence for me in a scripted series, as you may know, especially in American scripted series. But I think I understand and felt some of what James was getting at with his comment on the Instagram account, which by the way, you should definitely follow at Fullcasting Crew. Now, typical of me, I missed it. Or to be more fair, I resisted watching The White Lotus when all the rest of you were watching it last summer. This series premiered on HBO uh, July 11th, 2021. And I just reflexively cannot always get into things when everyone else is already into them, unless it's something specific that I'm already interested in, like Denny Villeneuve's Dune. This is a flaw that I have. I'm aware of it. It's kind of comical that, you know, six to nine months to a year later, I come back. Now, the origins of this series I've read stem from HBO's realization at some point in 2020 that the pandemic was going to foul up their pipeline of prestige, big budget streaming scripted fare. And they realized they had better explore some series options with showrunners and creators who they worked with in the past and who have a reputation for working quickly. And Mike White has such a reputation, apparently, and had previously delivered the goods for HBO with his series Enlightened, which starred Laura Dern as a self-destructive executive who, after the implosion of her professional life, has a philosophical and moral reawakening in Hawaii and in rehab, and then tries to get her life back together. That series, although very highly praised by most all critics, was kind of underseen by audiences. And it's for that reason that Mike White begins The White Lotus episode one with a body being loaded into a commercial jetliner and a man who is in some form of a funk that is unexplained at this point is enduring busybody tourists asking him pestering questions about what resort were you at? And he basically ends up telling them to leave him the fuck alone and that his wife died. And that's how it starts. And then we flash back seven days previous with people arriving at a Hawaiian resort for a week lavish vacation. Mike White says he used the dead body device because while his show's typically get critical praise, they've sometimes had a hard time drawing viewers. And this was his admittedly shameless attempt to get people hooked right away with a mystery dead body. So a little bit about Mike White, because I find him kind of a fascinating showrunner and creator. He's got such an interesting background. He, he was a TV writer in the late 90s for shows like Freaks and Geeks and Dawson's Creek. We used to watch Dawson's Creek when I worked at VH1, or rather 
I used to go to VH1 and watch Dawson's Creek when we were supposed to be working is probably a more effective way or truthful way of stating it. He then became known for writing and starring in the indie cringe comedy Chuck and Buck, which came out in 2000. This film is well known enough to forever complicate the fact that I personally happen to have two friends named Chuck and Buck, and they are often together. And to this day, when I mention that in conversation, people stop and say, wait, you have friends named Chuck and Buck? Yes, yes, I do. Shout out to real Chuck and Buck. As an aside, when we were in high school, we used to have this game where we'd point out stars in public. I use the term game very loosely. We use the term game to sort of describe any number of just nonsensical verbal or physical activities that we would engage in. One game was called stars. So these weren't actual celebrities that we cited in public. These were civilians who in some usually completely subtle or bizarre way resembled actual celebrities. So you'd be stoned downtown and you'd nudge one of Chuck or Buck and you'd say, Joe Pesci star? And you'd like, you know, nod your head over in the direction of some guy who bizarrely, subtly resembled Joe Pesci. And then Chuck and or Buck would laugh in appreciation for the excellence of your visual acuity and comedic instincts. And then on rare occasions, when you actually did see a star, you'd add real, the word real to it. So rarely you could be out and about, let's say you saw actual Joe Pesci, and you'd say real Joe Pesci with that term, with that sort of tone in your voice. And the other friend would say, Real Joe Pesci in a confirming tone of voice. Ah, tell you, you guys missed out on a great, great time in high school, huh? Anyway, I digress. Mike White has described himself in interviews using his own words here as a basically albino, gay, weirdo, vegan, Buddhist, Santa Monica screenwriter. And that sort of self-awareness is, I think, typical of his work, his more personal work, a lot of which plums the often uncomfortable netherworld between his character's intentions and the lack of self-awareness that's afforded them by their race, their money, their status. And Mike White also has kind of a fascinating history with reality television, bizarrely. He's a super fan of Survivor, and he eventually appeared on the series and came in second. He and his father have also appeared on The Amazing Race. And he's talked quite a bit about his obsession with Survivor and other reality shows. He has said, quote, so much of self is situational. On these shows, you see how people bungle having power, how the oppressed becomes the oppressor, how the bully becomes the bullied. All the different survivor strategies felt like they were analogous to whatever I was going through. When you grow up watching a lot of scripted things, there's lots of tropes, there's lots of cliches, there's lots of religiosity around humanity. The first season of Survivor, these people were like straight out of life, so funny and complex and also very base and very human. There's something very honest about what goes on on that playing field that as a dramatist, I find very inspiring. So I take the time to read that very excellent quote from a very good interview that White did with Catherine Van Arendonk for, for Vulture uh, as an offshoot in New York Magazine. This is an interview, a brief interview that's so good at really gave me hope for humanity and creativity and journalism, by the way. Because I think understanding something like Mike White's interest in Survivor and what it can tell us about ourselves helps color our understanding of why the White Lotus is so good. It's grounded in things that Mike White has lived, experienced, and watched very closely, most specifically human nature, human behavior, and the ways in which status and wealth can corrode, corrupt, and overtake 
our more humanistic elements as people. So he's a chronicler of some of our basest instincts at times, yes, but he also has heart and he's concerned ultimately with the belief in a collective humanity, even as he just feels that he's got to note our failings along the way because they're very funny and they're very revealing. Another salient fact about Mike White is that he is the son of Mel White, who was a speechwriter and a ghostwriter for a lot of right-wing fundamentalist, fundament, why can't I say fundamentalist? Right-wing fundamentalist religious figures like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Billy Graham. This bizarre career track came about because Mel White, as a writer, was represented by the legendary Hollywood agent Swifty Lazar, who also represented those preachers and who assigned Mel White to work with them because Mel White had an evangelical upbringing, was an evangelical himself, and he had a PhD in religion. So he was assigned to work with those preachers and ended up ghostwriting their autobiographies. Now, this was complicated in 1994 when Mel White wrote a book in which he came out as gay. In 2003, Mike White himself came out as gay. And in The White Lotus, there's a storyline with Steve Zahn's character who, after a hilarious, hilariously handled testicular cancer scare that you just have to see for, your, for yourself, uh, finds out some of his own father's secrets and what happens to him in the unraveling of those secrets is part of the storyline of the series. So I think, again, delving into some of these personal aspects of Mike White's background is relevant. I don't do it here to be prurient. I just do it because I think it does help get to know a bit about the person who, in this tightly controlled pandemic production environment, you know, wrote and directed all the episodes. And we can see that the themes presented in The White Lotus aren't just chosen kind of willy-nilly or thrown into a pot. I think they come from personal experience. And I think he's interested in these things which have happened to him. And he's interested in using his art to plumb his own depths of his own failings and the things that he struggled with or navigated either particularly well or flailed about with uh, in some way. So after he did the film Chuck and Buck, he had a producing partnership with the actor and musician Jack Black for a number of years. He wrote a lot of Jack Black vehicles like Orange County, School of Rock, Nacho Libre. And he's also written really mass appeal studio films like The Emoji Movie and Pitch Perfect 3. At the same time that he's been writing and producing and directing his own films, more independent-minded films like Year of the Dog with Molly Shannon and Brad's Status with Ben Stiller. Molly Shannon, incidentally, does a knockout turn in the latest, uh, the later episodes of <laughs> The White Lotus. Uh, we'll talk about her in a bit. So Mike White is one of those auteurs whose work attracts a company of like-minded actors who seem to make room to appear in his work because I guess they know the work is going to be about something. It's going to challenge them as actors. So you're going to see people like Jennifer Coolidge and Laura Dern and Connie Britton, Luke Wilson, John C. Riley. Others, others of this will pop up over and over again in his work across the years. So basically, in like kind of early, mid-2020, HBO realized that this pandemic was not going away. And they reached out to Mike White and they said, what do you got that we can shoot quickly in one location during the pandemic 
for less than $3 million an episode for six episodes. So what Mike White had was the germ of an idea of a couple on their honeymoon where the wife, who is from a more middle-class background, slowly realizes that she faces a choice. She can either be her authentic self and continue to explore her personal and professional ambitions, or she can accept her status as basically the trophy wife arm candy of her spoiled brat rich kid husband. So writing quickly, as he apparently does, White wrote all of the episodes expanding off that central conceit and went into the life of the employees and visitors at a high-end resort in Hawaii as they deal with the various entitled rich white vacationer problems. And in that setup, it's one that Mike White knows pretty well because he has long had a second home on Kauai and spends apparently upwards of half the year there. And he's also been involved in the movement to uh, attempt to address some of the more egregious colonialist land grabs that that took place and take place in Hawaii. That's also kind of a storyline that weaves throughout the White Lotus. And again, another example, I think, of not just a, you know, Santa Barbara showrunner, writer deciding, hey, I'm going to tackle, you know, the history of colonialism in Hawaii uh, out of the blue or in an attempt to sort of tick a box that is contemporarily popular. But I think it's something that he knows something about and has been involved with. And he threads it through this, not in a authoritative way. I think he's said in many interviews, he's highly attuned to the parts of these stories that aren't his to tell. But he's also not going to shy away from stories that other people might criticize him for taking on and say, hey, that's not his story to tell. I personally think that's to be admired because it lends to truthful art, honest art. And that's where I think The White Lotus comes from. So the series found a shooting home at the end of 2020 at the Four Seasons Resort Maui in Waialea, which was at the time closed to the pandemic and welcomed the cast and crew. Although kind of funny, I read one interview where he said, you know, I'm not entirely sure they 100% knew <laughs> what they were signing up for. However, uh, if you can afford the $9,000 a night pineapple suite, you should definitely check it out because it looks beautiful. Shooting over a few months in the fall and the winter of 2020, the series was really limited to shooting in and within the resort. Like uh, apparently the only place they could go other than the grounds of the resort itself due to the pandemic and the quarantine was uh, they could shoot on some boats that the resort had. So there's a couple storylines that take place on different boats that venture out into the surrounding ocean. There are no shoots in surrounding villages or towns. You know, we don't go to New York or LA and see the vacationers in their natural environments. So within those confines, White found a typically Mike White combination of comedy and emotional depths layered with what the series cinematographer Ben Cutchins calls a sense of foreboding, that something slightly dangerous and maybe a little off-center is going on beneath the veneer of civilization. So let's start there because Ben Cutchins, I think, has encapsulated what The White Lotus is all about uh, in as succinct a synopsis as I could offer here. For a series that is about entitled rich white people vacationing in a magically beautiful land with as larcenous a colonial history as Hawaii, it's in the often unexpected ways that scenes are laced with a sense of that foreboding that 
characters that kind of otherwise benignly present allow flashes of this kind of slightly dangerous underbelly. And that off-kilter and off-center moments are deployed with maximum control and dexterity to induce in the viewer a often uncomfortable reaction or as the millennial tyrant played by Sidney Sweeney in the series would say, dad, cringe. So getting back to James's comment that the series was great, but he's not sure why, I think this is also part of what he's referring to because as I watch the episodes, and as I said, there's only six of them, but in the first couple, I oftentimes felt like this is kind of hard to watch. Uh, not hard to watch in the way that many other current scripted series are hard to watch because they are tilling over the same old actor-friendly ground of trauma and loss in different ways. This is hard to watch because of Mike White's unerring eye for the cringe-inducing perfect moment. Things that happen between people that we often don't have to see, he puts front and center on the camera. And Mike White and his actors are not shying away from those awkward or those uncomfortable moments or the things that many of us think but don't say. In The White Lotus, the characters both raise and avoid their own complicity in a lot of thorny contemporary issues like white privilege, woke politics, class and racial issues, gaslighting, addiction, colonialism in Hawaii, on and on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that this series is taking on and kind of weaves into what on one level is sort of a surface uh, comedy about privilege and elitism, but underneath that has, has real attempts at addressing all of those things and more under the, under the hood. But first and foremost, the comedy mind from these fields is, is incredible. It's often indescribable. It's beyond worthwhile. I think you'll find it moving and hilarious and bawdy and often cringy, yes, but it's always human and real and very closely observed. So in addition to Mike White's pitch-perfect characterization, characterizations and dialogue and scenarios, there are also at least three other superlative areas where I think the series gets some of its magic from. The first and the most important beyond the creative genius of Mike White and his writing in his storytelling is the cast. Every single person is perfectly cast and utilizes that magical combination of you know, actors who just have this thing on screen and without doing anything through some combination of our awareness of their previous career perhaps and also some almost indescribable, almost chemical visceral reaction that we must have to the to the way that their their face reads on screen it imbues it with a certain feeling and that is deployed here with a almost kind of scientific precision so when i say how an actor reads on the screen i don't mean the words that they're that they're saying i mean the those depths of personality that come across when a camera points at a certain certain actor for these roles in, in The White Lotus, nobody is outright good or evil per se, uh, except maybe the spa manager character, um, but everyone's messily human. <laughs> so we do need actors that we kind of reflexively like or bring our own history uh, to, even as they say and do terrible things or commit gaffes of a unself-aware variety. So 
you're going to watch this and come away with your own favorites in the cast. But for me, in no particular order, I thought Marie Bartlett, Connie Britton, Steve Zahn, Natasha Rothwell, Alexandra Daddario, Fred Heckinger, Jake Lacey, Sidney Sweeney, Brittany O'Grady, Molly, Molly Shannon, Jennifer Coolidge, Kiko Akikumano, and John Grease were all uniformly excellent. Okay, I just named every single person in the cast, but they are all excellent. In my opinion, the series belongs to Murray Bartlett's astounding performance as Armand, the gay recovering addict manager of the White Lotus Hotel, whose inadvertent double booking of the pineapple suite sets off the activities that take place over the course of the six episodes. For an actor that I personally have never really seen before, he is so <laughs> unbelievably perfect in this role. I read, I read an interview with him where he said, I, I would love to play this character forever. I would love to see him play this character forever because it, it has, as, as great as he is and as funny as he is and as filled with pathos as he often is, as scheming and as <laughs> uh, evil as he can be, as inappropriate as he can be, you, you get the feeling that you want to learn so much more about this character. So he fits this role like a glove. And he also perfectly embodies the dual personality that's required for his place in the service industry, where he has to sort of be with and among the wealthy and the entitled. But he also ever so slightly must remain in service to them. And he needs to understand them in order to provide them the services they expect or demand, but he has to also toe this line very carefully. And the many pitfalls and traps that he sets for himself unfold in amazing and unpredictable ways. And Murray Bartlett, phenomenal, uh, one of the greatest performances in a TV series you're going to see. And after him, I would put Alexandra Daddario's performance as the newlywed Rachel up there with the other performance I was really taken with, I mean, she has, on the surface, what would seem to be sort of one of the least interesting roles. You know, she's the trophy wife, right? That's sort of how you're introduced to her. That's what she looks like. That's what your expectation is. That's what your prejudice is, perhaps. But in many ways, she is, for the majority of all six episodes, the most real person outside of... Natasha Rothwell's spa manager character. She's the most real person you're going to meet. She's actually thinking and feeling things and communicating them. But then there's a twist. <laughs> and the twist at the end of episode of the very final episode leaves you uh, a bit on the back foot. It leaves you kind of not certain. And, and this is a twist that many people who loved the series were unhappy about. I'm not going to spoil it here. I'm not doing spoilers, even though, again, I'm a year late. But in case you haven't seen it, I do want you to feel inspired to go check it out. And I don't want to spoil any of the things that happen. So Rachel doesn't necessarily have quite the same mask that kind of falls away from her like a lot of the other characters do over the course of the series. But she does undergo an awakening that is a result of her new husband's actions. These actions are teased out by his sense of entitlement. When he learns that his mother's booking of the pineapple suite for his honeymoon has not been honored by the resort and that Armand kind of fucked up. And his obsession with this, his refusal to let it go will be familiar to anyone who has traveled with people who cannot let go simple things during the course of vacations. You know, things that go wrong, 
it, it happens no matter where you are. Just because you're on an expensive vacation, it doesn't mean that mistakes aren't going to be made. And I think we've all been and traveled with people who cannot let those mistakes go. This is something that Mike White absolutely nails. So this character's obsession and his mother's talk about cringy showing up at the honeymoon cause Rachel to confront herself. And this confrontation ties into uh, one of the other major storylines because Rachel in the end turns to Natasha Rothwell's spa manager character Belinda in a real moment. We know it's a real moment because we've been following her and we understand that she's at a very critical breakthrough moment and being sort of by herself with her husband in this resort she ends up kind of crying in the spa one morning and Belinda, who is a giving, caring, nurturing personality, gives her her card and says, you know, give me a call if you get in trouble. And so she does give her a call and they do meet. And But by that time, we also know that the Belinda character has had her hopes and dreams raised and then spurned by the Jennifer Coolidge character. And in doing so, Belinda is at the end of her rope and has no room or time for any more white lady tears and essentially says that <laughs> in this in this scene which is such a bizarre and fascinating thing to do as a dramatist right like here's a character you've brought her all the way here over six episodes we care about her we're supposed to care about her and <laughs> in her most important character moment, he has the, the audacity to pull the rug out from her and from us by being true to Belinda's character because her journey has also taken place and precedence in this moment. And that's part of what the series is about. That's a genius choice to me. So Rachel's actions at the very end of the film, I mean, the, the last episode are, as I said, very controversial moments for fans of the series, and I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are. As for Belinda, Natasha Rothwell, oh my God, what a what an incredible performance. She so fully embodies and inhabits Belinda that I actually had to be reminded by the production clips that she was in Insecure. <laughs> and, you know, as the comic relief, she is so good and available and open. And her nurturing, nurturing presence with Jennifer Coolidge's character, her cutaways are just brilliant. It is a masterclass, not in line readings per se, uh, although she's a fantastic actor. But her facial expressions communicating the absorption of too much information from the Jennifer Coolidge character are brilliant. Her her embodiment of what she as a black woman has to deal with from rich, white, entitled people is perfect. And she has a phone call scene with her son when she's in the parking lot of the hotel upon arriving for work one morning. That's a, you know, it's essentially a one, it's a one-handed phone call scene for an actor, right? Like she has to pretend to be talking on a cell phone. And it's one of the most real moments in the whole series. Not, not only one of the most real, I'm sorry. It's one of the only real moments in the whole series. The other being the son, Quinn, of Steve Zahn and Connie Britton's characters has several real moments relating to the nature of Hawaii when he's swimming, when he's scuba diving with his father, when he's participating in a, a dragon boat race. But aside from those nature moments, her phone call with her son is one of the only quote unquote kind of real moments that someone has throughout the entire series, which is also fascinating. 
Now, I'm a sucker for cameo roles expertly handled. And Molly Shannon, oh my God. Her passive-aggressive tornado of a mother-in-law is a tour de force from the very moment of her surprise entrance. Brilliant, brilliant deployment of her. And again, really, I think, interesting uh, warfare acting. She's, she's engaged in warfare with Rachel and all through a smiling, frozen, rictus grin face. Steve's on. I fucking love Steve Zahn. I always have. Watch him in Out of Sight. He's brilliant. He's brilliantly used here. He contains multitudes. He's hilarious. He allows himself to put forth some of the series' most pointed kind of white privilege lines. He allows his character to be the embodiment of that in a way. I'm not going to say it's brave, but it's it's a choice and he had to make that choice and he he pulls it off particularly well. Connie Britton is fantastic and manages a very tricky balancing act herself. There's there's a really good scene between her and Alexandra Daddario that has so many twists and turns. I mean, again, if you're a fan of writing and acting and directing, I, I think that that's what's so watchable about the series is there's so many things going on in these scenes at once and these actors – are so phenomenally capable of playing these these different layers of what's going on in a scene. Sydney Sweeney and Brittany O'Grady are perfectly cast as these sardonic college students who hold everyone but themselves accountable for all the failings of humanity. And one thing the series does really brilliantly is show us how no no one thing is ever going on in those moments. For example, in the last episode, there's this scuba trip taken by the Connie Britton Steve Zahn family. And Brittany O'Grady is the friend of the daughter played by Sydney Sweeney, and she's on this vacation. She, like Rachel, doesn't come from a background that would allow her to take a vacation in a, in a $9,000 a night hotel suite. She's also obviously biracial. And so there's all those elements that are going on throughout all of the episodes. But by this point, we also know something about her character and something that her character has done which is also, you know, kind of a rug pulling out moment for those of us that followed along with her to this point. But for the family on the boat, this moment where the events that have transpired finally cause everyone in their family to drop their masks and their guard for a bit and kind of find, find each other again as a family. And those scenes are real and those shots of the family are real. And really well directed by Mike White. But at the same time, because this is going on, because the family is bonding around an event, which we know, but they don't know, was caused by her character, her character, Paul, is having the worst day of her life. And I think it's so interesting to do a scene where two things can be true, right? To me, that's what adds this humanity to the series is, you know, the adage that you know you never know what someone's going through when you're irritated or angry or upset you know we don't know what other people are going through and i think that type of realization is something that's laced through this series for me and i thought that scene handled that particularly well so the entire cast is really just incredible to watch uh, i would love to talk to mike white about how he directed some of these scenes because 
the actors are so skilled and they're playing these really complicated things that have multiple levels going on. And I would love to just know how he did that. You know, was it just on the page and in the casting, as they will often say, which is, you know, I wrote what I wanted and then the casting director did such a great job. And a lot of directors will say, if you cast really well, you don't have to do a lot of hand-holding and directing because this person embodies some quality that you had in mind to such a degree that you don't have to do, you know, numerous nuanced takes in order to arrive at what you're looking for. Was it that or was there an element of conversation between him and the actor about what was going on in these scenes in his mind when he wrote them? That's what I'd be fascinated to hear about. So shout out to casting director Meredith Tucker. She did a fantastic job. Uh, I found some audio from IndieWire of her talking about the casting of White Lotus. Despite some of these people doing a lot of unappealing things, there was nothing, no character I felt on the show that was completely loathsome. The goal is to create for the guests an overall impression of vagueness that can be very satisfying. I sent a batch of actors and Michael was like, no, these are, guys are all wrong. They're playing it much too bitchy, much too catty. We have to like this guy. We're going to follow him throughout. When we send a new next batch, he said, is there anyone you like? I said, oh, Murray Bartlett is really hilarious. He did this thing in his audition when Shane and Rachel come to the desk to complain. And he just cocked his head a little bit. And with his Australian accent, he was still smiling and stuff. But you kind of knew that he had the sort of ferocity to do where that character went. I don't know. Maybe I should call my mother. Do you want to call your mother? What do you think she'll say? He wanted actors who could be funny as opposed to comedians. He wrote Tanya for Jennifer Coolidge and he wrote Kitty for Molly. So when people hear Molly Shannon and Jennifer Coolidge, they think it's gonna be some outrageous comedy. That was one thing that we were conscious of, not to sort of assume things of the tone. And the next area where the series really shines is in Ben Cutchin's cinematography. I mentioned his quote earlier. It's one of those jobs here where the less you notice the very deliberate and formal choices he's making as a cinematographer, I think the better those choices were. You know, when you hear him talk about it, then you look back and you go, oh, yeah, that he is doing that in almost all these shots, but I didn't notice it at the time. Most of the work that I've done over the last couple of years has been involved with Ozark and coming from this very cold blue world and, and stepping into something that was a completely different environment, I thought was like a great challenge in how do I make this environment something that's foreboding and slightly dangerous. The unhinged nature that I think I really had fun with was Armand's story. You know, that was sort of the most fun that I could have in that darkness. It was sort of like the most descriptive that I could be with the camera in terms of somebody going off the deep end. And I think often that's what I'm looking for is something that doesn't look pleasantly composed, but something that actually creates some feeling of tension. Part of the decision to shoot most of this handheld was the ability to change frames while we're shooting. And I would often say to the camera operators to go into a more dirty over, you know, potentially like filling more of the frame with the person in the foreground, maybe panning left a little bit and giving more, you know, kind of like the wrong look room to a character, you know, creating tension in ways that are imperceptible to most people. But to me, being able to adjust on the fly like this was really like at the heart of the show. And making you very uncomfortable as an audience member 
to be watching this because it's kind of gross, you know, and you have to like take the audience on that journey and they have to take that really seriously and simultaneously see how utterly ridiculous it all is. And I think that was like a great adventure for me to go on was to really try to like continually keep a perspective that made the audience uncomfortable in this very beautiful place with the sun setting and the waves crashing. And finally, and not at all the, the, the least, the music. Wow. Nothing on TV has ever sounded like this. Of the thousands and thousands of limited run scripted series you've ever seen, how many would you recognize from one or two or three notes? That's what you can do with this music. Once you hear it, you will not forget it. It's brilliant. The soundtrack is superlative. It's a fully formed character in the series. And the composer, Juan Cristobal Tapia de Vere, just, I think, set a standard for this kind of thing. Uh, the music is inextricable from what's great about the series. It informs it. It has just the right feeling of menace and whimsy. So. Here's a little bit of Juan Cristobal Tapia de Vere talking about the music. I don't really follow a character with the music. It has its own identity. It's like a character that is evolving with the rest, but not always supporting exactly what's happening to the image on, on a particular scene. The voices had an unsettling quality to them. Sometimes they don't even sound quiet human. It's like voices speaking to you and breathing in your ears and, and somehow unstabilizing you. But at the same time, you just can't stop. It's a, a driving forward in a powerful way. It's just extremely chaotic. And it, it, it felt like the characters. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be right back with that. There is just this constant tension that is bubbling, even though uh, conversations might not necessarily point you to, to that, but the music is still pushing it just for that thing, you know, for that tension. Oh. Aloha, how is everyone this morning? You have our backpack. It's a green backpack. You said yesterday that you didn't have it, but he just said that he gave it to you two days ago and then you put it in the washroom. If they were shy at the mix and put it, you know, like two behind the dialogue and stuff, then it would really actually be noise, uh, something distracting that is not really doing anything for the, for, for the characters. But the fact that they actually make it a character and put it really loud makes complete sense. Maybe that, that is even crucial to the fact that this works. There's a few moments in the show where it feels more uh, honest and it feels like a break from the rest of the madness. Like Queen, the kid at some point, swimming in the water with, with a turtle, and it feels like he's connecting with nature and he's calm. And there's this, you know, tiny guitar and just voices, and it feels like you're floating with a turtle in there. So that's really, a, I suppose, one of the rare, honest, and calm moments. Now, ultimately, what makes The White Lotus so great, I think, is it's truthful and it tries to be honest. I, I think it feels like it comes from a 
honestly vulnerable place in Mike White. It's not agenda driven. It's not one dimensional or easy to categorize. I think like much of his work, it's just very much itself. And if you have a particular attraction to all the messy ways we are all human, it will probably speak to you and leave you always double-checking your suitcase before closing them up and leaving the resort. Until next week, thanks for listening to the podcast. And as always, don't forget to tell two friends. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. 